0: Hey everyone, just a quick spoiler warning before we head into this interview. We will be discussing details about the plot of the Banshees of Inisharan. Hi everybody, welcome to another brand new interview. I'm Kai Savas here, sitting with the amazing Carter Burwell. Carter, thank you so much for uh, joining me today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Nice to see you.
0: Yeah, nice to see you again. So, um, uh, we we did an interview a few years back. Uh, we talked a lot of, about a lot of stuff, a lot of your work with the Coen Brothers, and and so this one, you know, now we're going to talk about your work with Martin McDonough, who's a, one of my favorite writers and directors. Um, but to start off our conversation, I just want to pitch a question to you that maybe is simple, seems simple, but maybe is not so simple. But I'm just curious, uh, what does music mean to you as a human, as a as an artist, as a storyteller, whatever sense you make of that question, what does it mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> um well
1: so uh there's two ways i of course there's probably a thousand ways to look at that question yeah uh, for me as a composer there are two ways one is what does it mean to me as a composer when i'm making it and the other is what would what it mean to me as a listener right they're, they're very different things sure um so um you know i think as a composer or actually in both cases it to me it's really a way of um conveying feeling um through abstract means in other words it's, as opposed to say for instance with language with poetry it's um music's abstract same way for instance painting might be uh but somehow is even more emotional than um than the physical arts and i can't explain why i don't know why that is but it does seem to be an emotional language and um so then I have to say immediately as a composer, one of the things that I find fascinating about is that it's also sort of, sort of a mathematical language. It's all about yeah. ratios and meters. So the fact that it can be both mathematical and emotional is just striking to me. And I still can't quite, even at this point in my life, I still can't quite get my head around how it is possible to be both those things. But that's what makes it honestly very important to me. It's, it's basically like putting numbers communicating numbers through feeling or feeling through numbers i i think it's really interesting
0: yeah that's a i love that answer it's fantastic and uh i, I want to rewind just a little bit before we jump into some current stuff i was uh i thought a fun talking point would be maybe talk about thick pigeon for a little bit i was listening to some old thick pigeon stuff and i'm curious what your memories are of working with uh, stanton miranda and those days before you know and how that kind of transitioned into whatever you know whenever um Uh, blood simple came along and and where on that timeline did it kind of shift you into the film world (laughs) sure well when i first came to new york with the
1: intention of doing music but i was it was not my intention that that would be a like a full-time thing it was always sort of an avocation but i I came there because of the music scene um yeah uh, you know miranda was one of the first people i i met honestly there um we were just sort of reaching out to lots of people and getting to know as many people as we could. And um and she was very interesting. She was also interested in, in film. Um but um and she played bass in a, a band I was in then she left that band, but the two of us kept playing um her on bass and me on keyboard and, and Miranda singing. Um and other people would come and go through through the band, come and sit in on things. Um and we'd do little recordings say little records but really it's just the two of us in a room you know you know reel-to-reel tape recorder um and someone amazingly uh, a label in belgium um started to put them out so we were like we were big in belgium in the early 80s and um off of those then factory records uh expressed an interest uh factory records being based in manchester um in the uk and uh so yeah we this was right around the time that um, also that the Cohn brothers had sort of reached out about Blood Simple and I'd yeah. given them some ideas um, and didn't hear anything back from them really. So I, I went to Manchester with Miranda. We worked on an album there with two members of New Order, um, Steve Morrison and Gillian. And, um, and it was just really interesting because Manchester was a, a very much a scene back then, right? Um, yeah. Uh, factory records owned a club called the hacienda they uh there were all these bands um happening and um it was cool to be like part of that and center of that we were there for about a month and while i was there joel Ethan called and said well we think we want you to do the music for our movie okay well i'll be back in new york you know in in a week or whatever and um and so i also had a gig uh as an my day job back then was as an animator um and i was, had a gig in tokyo as an animator that i had to leave for so really i just had like two weeks or something in which to maybe three weeks but in which to basically get blood simple done um
0: wow.
1: so i flew back and and did all that but it was maybe my most exciting year you know when yeah. I yeah between just those three things doing the album the Thick Pigeon album and Blood Simple and then going and lived in Tokyo for three months for, um, working on anime there. Um,
0: it was pretty cool. That's yeah. I, I love your animation background too. I work at Cartoon Network Studios. Uh It's my day job. And Oh, really? Um, wow. I, yeah. I'm in the animation world. You know, I work with Gennie Tartakovsky and, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm production systems manager for the studio. So I just love, I live in that world as well. So and okay. I love your, your animation background too. Um, But talking more about, I mean, in those early days, I remember, I just want to just mention really briefly, we don't have to jump too much into it, but I think Psycho 3 is just like an underrated film and score of yours as well as, my wife and I, we actually love the the sequels. I think they're all very interesting. I know like everyone all always, very different, right? They're yeah. very different. And I love that Anthony Perkins got into directing and all that stuff. But I think the third one is so, so unique. And, and I just remember watching it and going, wow, this is, this is actually not bad. Like you, everyone always says talks about like, you know, you, see, you think of the first one as the classic, you know, it's like a Jaws and all the sequels and, but the, they were all unique and different. And I, and I just wanted to mention that I think it's so early in your career that you were able to do some cool stuff like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that was totally thanks to Tony. Like he, when he, um, he said he wouldn't do the movie unless he got to direct, and Bruce was fine with that. And then amazingly, he called me. Like I mean, he and I, you know, didn't have an agent or anything. In fact, they they sent a letter to some post office box they found, and I found the letter eventually weeks later. And I mean, it's just by chance. Uh, So many coincidences, really. That. Yeah. we got it together to do that and um it was that was really tony's idea to hire a, a different guy for a different sound you know and um that was yeah that was something i was you know, my first time working in la some in some ways my last time working in LA, but also my <laughs> first time and um yeah it was it was very special to me too
0: yeah very much uh well let's let's jump into working with, Mar- with martin with martin mcdonough and uh, uh you've scored all of his feature films up to this point and uh and i just love i mean i just actually they just released uh, in bruges on 4k let me get it in there but it's brand oh, new brand new set i will wow. uh brand new uh, dolby vision master so i can't That's wait great. to check that out um yeah, so- i'm really
1: hoping like this film and three books i hope i'm hoping these films bring more attention to in bruges cuz i just think it's such a great film but yeah. wasn't widely seen when it came out
0: and, and and I love that there's a little bit of an Imbruge reunion here now with with Banshees and uh, so um, talk to me about working with Martin and what do you remember from first meeting him on Imbruge and and how has that uh, relationship evolved over these these uh, couple of films or four what's four films yeah we got seven yeah, four. Psycho- four movies so has it changed has it not changed uh, you know have you fallen into a nice rhythm or is it kind of different on each film I'm curious how the the evolution of the relationship has been. Well, it began really with just
1: Martin um, reaching out. He was going to make his first feature. He had done a, a short called Six Shooter that had yeah. won the Academy Award for Best Short, and and it's it's a wonderful short. It really is. Yeah, it um, is. But I but I honestly didn't know him um, at the point at which he um, he reached out. He kind of like he was very modest about you know I'm I'm I have some plays that I've written and you know in this short film now I want to do the feature, and then I've basically I bought copies of um, the scripts for uh, a lot of his plays to get to know him. Which is great. It was, I mean, I'm saying, what I'm saying right now, everybody else in the world already knows he's an amazing playwright. And um, just spending a weekend reading his plays really mind-bending and and, and wonderful. Uh, So immediately I wanted to, um, yeah, I did want to work with him. And um, and of course, the script in Bruges I really liked. Um, So uh, that's how it came about. I guess I flew to London to meet with him and, and his producer, Graham Broadbent. we just had lunch and chatted and he's a really nice guy very sweet you would he's not like any of the characters in movies let me say that yeah he's just a really uh you know sweet guy who kind of come up in the theater so he's also very like gives you a big hug kiss kiss you know he's like very um uh you know human uh (laughs) very much a human being again unlike some of the characters in his um his work and um anyway he's uh so we we got along very well right away and i think he had on the first film on in bruges he had his own challenges that that basically came from the film companies it's just like what it is to be doing your first film They, they don't have any any power or any juice with the the studio and um They were just torturing about every decision that he had to make and uh, including the music and they're like pushing, trying to get him to push the music this way or that. And he didn't want to push me any way at all. I mean, I had what I thought was very clear idea of what the music should be. And it would play sort of the fragility of these tough guys, you know, and their own existential issues, you know, and play it. That, which you don't, you know, which is the last thing you expect to see on the screen with all the gunplay yeah. and everything, but that's what the music um does. And the uh I guess focus features had some totally different expectations, of what the music would be. Um, so that was tough for Martin, harder for him than for me. I knew what I wanted to do and I was just gonna do it. But um, because also that's a good thing about when there's very little money, you you know, I get to right. do what I want. You know, what's the worst that can happen? They <laughs> fired me.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um,
1: uh but you know he was happy with the music. i was very happy with it and um and the movie came out and i think did you know pretty well for what a, you know for a first film um and then it got him the you know the right make right to make another and then you know with three billboards which was a sort of surprise hit he can kind of now do what he wants but um with this one you know it's interesting he what he wanted was to make an even smaller film um like with like just three or four characters on, it uh, feels Shotgun. very
0: much like a play yeah very much in that kind of stage play sense yeah it, it does he wouldn't want to hear you say that
1: because uh, you know he uh because <laughs> it does have their exteriors <laughs> it'd be a lot oh, of but, oh
0: but visually but uh, yeah as a visual film, a though it's part of so it. visual yeah yeah
1: i know when he thinks of a play he thinks okay something that takes place in one or two rooms that's a play um yeah. but this is this is one or two rooms and uh, a vast exterior of um of ireland um but um yeah it's very it's interesting how he went in the direction wanting to do something so small as basically you no know, plot and sometimes he's a very extensive plotter but in this case it's basically you can describe the whole thing in one sentence very easily yeah. and um i feel like the music is sort of like that too where it's very much a less is more approach like you know if you can say it with two notes instead of three that's all the all better and um and if and the script is like that if you can you know say it with two words instead of three and they're long stretches of the movie with no dialogue which for someone who's came up as a playwright that's um a big step for him to want to you know create to write a screenplay where there's like a page with no dialogue it's just descriptions of visuals and stuff um yeah it's um it's interesting anyway so that's that's the main thing that has changed honestly the way we interact is the same as ever we we don't talk about the music much before it happens and um, and then I just send him things and he gives me feedback and um, we're never in the same physical location typically because he's in London I'm on the east coast of the U.S. but um, he trusts me a lot and, and I trust him and um, so far it's worked out
0: yeah it's and and the film itself is so, yeah you mentioned how the the plot of the film is very you know simple these two old friends all of a sudden one decides not to speak to the other one and and is you know saying leave me alone is take, is kind of put on the backdrop of the irish civil war and um and then it just goes down this very dark path uh and you and you treated it uh i was reading on your on your website which i urge everyone to go check out carter's website because you do these great little blogs about each of your projects so that go way more in depth and i think you're talking about how you're reading uh cinderella with your daughter Grimm's fairy tale and kind of popped in your head because martin didn't want to go kind of like irish and traditional irish route so kind of treated it more like a fairy tale but there you know it does go down a dark path and I do want to jump into some of the plot points so I'll, I'll put a spoiler warning and of course spoiler warning for anyone listening um so talk to me about the film and uh when did you you know do I know you also like to wait you like to work with writer and directors because uh you like to read the script first um but I'm curious when do the ideas start popping in your head do you are you reading the script and go oh I'm, I'm getting some ideas or do you wait for that first cut first or lock picture or something like that
1: sometimes um i get ideas from the script uh you know i did film this year uh catherine called birdie with lena dunham and i knew when i read the script i was even like just a third of the way in the script i knew exactly what i wanted the music to be and even knew who i thought should perform it but with uh banshees i really didn't know i have have to say i really didn't know and all i the only instructions i got from martin was that it shouldn't be irish uh the the score shouldn't be irish and which would have been the obvious thing to do but when that's taken away I didn't I really didn't know what to do and so I waited until um until there was basically a rough cut of the film and I just started putting things putting ideas against it and the first the the character that you see the story through is Colin Farrell's character he's also the first one that you see and so I really just started with that with his character and um and trying things out, different arrangements, different melodies, and, and as I said before, I just stripped the melody. A lot of the me- time, the melodies comes down to two notes that just go back and forth. Yeah. Three notes. I mean, on the you know, if you look at the music, it's like the simplest score ever written, probably. When I when I went to Abbey Road to record it, I'm carrying like this much, you know, like <laughs> this much music. I really felt like I hadn't done my job because it was so simple um but I you know I say that facetiously I do think it really works but it was kind of embarrassing how few actual dots on the page there there are
0: yeah and uh, the I mean it starts off kind of I I love the way it starts off and you meet Colin's character Parikh and and Colm and you see that you know you don't know what their relationship was but kind of it starts with them not speaking and and the score does take a turn I think after is I think after he cut so you know uh, brennan gleason's character threatens to cut off his fingers every time uh you know colin farrell's character tries to talk to him and then you don't know if he's bluffing and then he finally does it and i think the score does take a turn after that first because you're like oh okay this is this is actually happening and we start going through this path and you you're experiencing it through colin's character like his reaction like what is going on and so i'm curious how do you think the your score shifted in tone after that moment? And I think there's another big seismic shift is also, of course, when his beloved uh, donkey passes away. And that moment is such a beautiful moment, a sad moment. I remember just sitting in the theater, just kind of weeping, <laughs> like you see this character acting with a, you know, fake dead donkey, but it's such a, it's like the first innocence lost, I think, in the, in the story to me. So I'm curious how your music shifted in tone as the those kind of moments popped up and where down that dark path that you wanted to go well
1: so yes at the the put that in context at the beginning of the film you know you see calvin farrell's character as sort of this happy happy lad is the way they, yeah. they put it in the film and um indeed like in the very first shot he's walking around the harbor and there's a rainbow behind him it's you know and then he's got his miniature dice almost like the opening of a disney film um yeah and um and i play him that way like a you know a man child like and the um the music is almost something you could hear in an elementary school it's like celeste and harp and marimba um but it is also a little bit off (laughs) yeah you know the harmonies are a little chromatic and a little don't go where you expect them to necessarily but um but it's but the tone is light i'll say that and um then at the point at which you're describing the those shifts in um in his character in his experience uh it does get darker like we start to you start to bring in lower i start to bring in lower pitched instruments um uh lower everything sort of there are things happening an octave below where they were before um uh at the bottom of the um orchestra and um and the general feel is um is definitely getting heavier but it's still the same tunes, and the celeste is still there, and the harp is still there, and the flutes. Um, and I think for me, what happens is by the you get time, you get to the end of the movie, um, yeah. where the you know um, the denouement. Uh, it's still basically the same tune that you heard at the very beginning, but now it's playing ironically, like if now it's sort of reminding you of the innocence that that has been lost um, yeah. along the way. Um, and yeah, so you um, and again, I don't want to go I don't want to go too much into the details of the story, but yeah, you you see these horrible things going on, but you still hear the celeste playing along with the harp, and it's, it still sounds like childlike um, music, but it's set against uh, violence and um, destruction and um, and very dark feelings and. Uh, and I feel like it brings those feelings out all the more for not playing so much the darkness. So um, it reminds you of who Colin, who Perrick is character, who he used to be. And um, anyway, that's, that's the general approach.
0: Absolutely. Was there, is there, when you were working on the film, was there uh, you mentioned you didn't know where to start, but when you were actually scoring the film, was there any scenes that you found challenging or did it kind of fall into place once you kind of found everything? To a surprising
1: extent, it did fall into place. There were places where, like, Martin and I would um, suffer over just getting the music, the right note in the right place, that kind of thing. Because it does, um, you know, they're little reveals of you know, a finger, you know, something yeah. like this, and like which right note to put on the finger and how, you know, and is it a, a this frame or three frames before? But they were all those types of things, like, more about, like how do we sync? You know, what's the what's the right beat on which to um, to land this musical moment? And because um, it is like if it were an action film, it would be cut on on action. It would all be very um, straightforward. You hit the those those cuts. But this is not an action film, even though it does involve some um, violence. The violence kind of like even when the way it's shot, you don't even see the actual violent events. You typically, don't. you see the results of them and so figuring out okay so which is the moment when we want to like push the audience you know a little bit a little bit further and uh, so th- that's what all all the discussions are pretty much about that not about the um the score as a piece of music but really more about like which is the frame where we want people to go oh, yeah you know.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> Is spotting
0: know. something like that hard? Because you're talking about how sparse it is and how, you know, you, so you have to be very kind of precise where the music is. Is is the spotting part difficult? Like, is it just go off, off instinct of like, oh, well, we do need music here? Or when do you know when you don't need music? How do you know that you need to pull back?
1: So spotting in this case, of this film was really the only day that Martin and I were in the same place um, together, in a room together until we got to the recording. Um, of course, this was... This was covid year yeah. you know but it wasn't so much about that it was just that he was in London and um and uh that's with and I was you know where I live at the end of Long island um so we did not spot that extensively we walked we went, went through the film talked about it it's kind of what we always do to be honest I don't even on three billboards I don't remember specifically saying it should start here it should end there we, we just somehow don't quite, do that in our spotting sessions there's never a music editor there
0: mm.
1: uh it it's just the two of us basically i think on this one the film editor uh Mikkel was there but um but basically it's the two of us chatting and it's as i then start working on it, i kind of figure out where i think music should go and then we start to get into it it's almost like we spot in the process of scoring the film it will be like well should it so I'll put something up, you know, I'll put something together. I'll send it to him. And then we talk about, well, is that the right place to stop it? the Right place to start it. Usually it's pretty obvious. Cause as I say, from the script, as a writer director, same thing with the Coen brothers, you can tell from the script pretty much where the music's going to go. It doesn't say music's yeah. going there, but you will see, well, there's here's a paragraph of text with no dialogue. It's just descriptions of things. There's probably going to be music there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that that's true with this film too. Um, the main thing that we talked about uh, was just how how much the music should say or not say and pretty much we pretty much always pulled it back like it would be I would write something and I'd say an example would be um, and this doesn't give away anything I don't think is there's a scene in which um, Colin Farrell's character is beaten by a policeman was punched a couple of times by yeah. a policeman. and then um, Brendan Gleason's character helps him up onto his um, carriage and drives the carriage back home but this is the, at the point at which they're not talking to each other And yeah. um, you
0: have and, that moment i love that moment yeah. on the carriage and he breaks down I know. Crying. so yeah. it's like
1: it's like a minute and a half or something where there's no dialogue it's just them riding silently um you know down these country roads and um i wrote a version of it where it did kind of like speak to Colin Farrell's uh, pain, like you know, here he is, he's beaten. There's all these dramatic and horrible things going on in his life, and he can't confide in his friend who's sitting right next to him because his friend said, "You can't talk to me anymore." And um, so I wrote a version which, like, was more emotional, um, brought those feelings to, or as as it developed as the ride went on, those feelings kind of welled up, and I think Colin Colin actually just cried during during that scene. and then Martin was like, eh, you know, don't don't think we need to do that. Let's just like keep it as like pair it back. Mm. So it ends up, I think, just being harp, just basically cycling away at this very simple theme, but the restraint makes it all the more painful, I think. Yeah. I mean Martin's right about that. And um that was basically whenever we had any issue, um, they were not really issues but discussions there was almost always that right. kind of thing Like, can we take this and make it less and um in some way um usually always went that direction
0: absolutely and the, i mean the, i mean the film has stuck with me since i've seen it i remember i went to a a ten thirty show it's a, it's a funny story i actually went for an earlier show and i was like this is great i get to sit here watch this film i've been looking forward to a martin mcdonough film for you know a couple of years now and and of course there was somebody talking and i was like oh god someone was talking like just having a conversation full out forward and I'm like me that. and some other guy had to come and, and ask her to be quiet very quick you know we we're polite then she kept talking and then i had to, the other person came and talked to her and then i had to walk out find somebody at that point i was like i already ruined the, it was it was like only 10 15 minutes into the movie i was like i have to walk out because i can't i missed like five important scenes and i came back i'm like from I'm the 10:30 show i had the theater to myself. And I just loved it having, you know, and it's <laughs> and it. And I'm glad I did that because I got to really just absorb it and not be distracted. And, um, and, uh, but it really stuck with me and it, the images stuck with me. And I'm curious, as a composer who works on all these with these very great visual filmmakers with the Coen brothers, with Spike Jones, with, um, with Martin, I'm curious, do you like, do you ever just like, I'll be walking sometimes, and then like something about Fargo will pop in my head, like whether it's an image or a line? I'm curious on the films and stuff you work on does that ever occupy your headspace just going about life or do you kind of remove it from your headspace and it's like, whatever is in front of you. So I'm curious, do you keep carry, I guess, everything you've worked on with you?
1: <laughs> I have to say once I've worked on it, it's, it's, it's gone. gone. It's yeah. in the rearview mirror. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right now I'm out like, you know, doing what we're doing today, t- talking about banshees with people and I'm doing what I can to get attention for the film. But um. You know I've, I've already done two more films since then you know and, yeah and they, yeah so it's, uh, you know to me it's um you know i love the film i actually just saw it properly projected for the first time maybe two or three days ago at the museum of modern art in new york and it was wonderful oh, wow. to see yeah a good projection of it it was so beautiful um but to me the music and and uh, um yeah and the project are basically done and um yeah. i you know i i you know i i'm not a, i'm not a person who enjoys going back um back to things honestly i really don't yeah do you um,
0: so, ever watch like if it's on tv or something do you ever catch something you worked on and just oh, let me watch a little scene or something
1: <laughs> what i do is the way it comes up usually is just i have three kids and when they get to be like the, the appropriate age show them like oh, far yeah. or something and i was like hey, hey, hey you know can we watch a movie And I'll show them that. And I'd love to show them in Bruges. I don't think they've seen that. Um, They haven't seen this. Um, I think my daughter saw many parts of it. She's 11. And she would walk in and she'd see (laughs) Brendan Gleeson's fingers at first are taped. They're taped with green tape, you know, because they have to use special effects um, uh, to remove them. But So she's actually seen the movie in bits and pieces, all, all, you know, in various ways. But but that's totally different you can probably imagine then actually seeing it as a story where the emotional impacts you know grow and grow and i think yeah. she actually may have gone to see it with her grandmother the other day. i'm curious to get the <laughs> download because yes it's totally different she will come in she'll just see me working on it and well you know she'll hear the music yeah. hear me play it like 20 times um but that's still different than experiencing the, the story um and the stories um has a lot of you know, impact. Um. So I'm curious how she, how she, how she takes it. I don't know. Yeah. That's. But that's, that's when a, I see them again. I would absolutely. I myself don't go back and, and watch the films I've done. Yeah. You're seeing it through your
0: kids' eyes. Music. I think that's that's. But that's special right. too. I think that's that's unique. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um. Before we wrap up, I do want to uh, uh talk because you did mention Catherine Calberti, and I think that score is absolutely just so unique and and different. And I'm curious. You know, when you approached it and working with director Lena Dunham, writer director as well. It's uh, you know, sort of an acapella score, but of course you have the the upright uh, base there to, so it's not traditional acapella, but what made you want to go and, and do that and work with a room full of teeth and, and, and literally just use voice. I mean, how do you even write for voice like that? And, and what is the collaborative aspect of that? How much is improvisation? How much is it sticking to what, what you want and what they want and what they're contributing? I'm curious what that process was like. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so, as I already said, basically, when I was reading the script,
1: I just, I think I had been listening to some Roomful of Teeth recordings, you know, in the month or two before that. But anyway, I, uh, but he was reading, I just thought, you know, you, you, when you read a script and it takes place in the year 1290, yeah. um, inevitably, as a composer, when you are going to ask yourself, so is this going to be like medieval instruments? And can I really say what I need to say with, you know, lute and, um, you know, sack butt or whatever and um so um the moment that I thought wow this would be pretty cool for his voices like I don't know you know I think most kids certainly me and I think my kids they, you know you you make funny sounds with your voice you're like you kind of you know score your life you know by humming and singing yeah. you know for the story is told totally from the point of view uh, kind of in the mind of this 14 year old girl and um I thought voice just seemed like the obvious thing it would save me from having to think about medieval instruments and it would put you like in her mind right away i thought and because i'd just been listening to a room full of teeth you know over the month or two before and i just thought yeah they would be also able to uniquely do like Unusual things with their voices, like yeah. right, you know, it wouldn't be like hiring a choir. Like if you just go and say, "I need eight voices for a recording," they'll say, "Okay, how many sopranos, altos, tenors, basses?" And you'd get them, and they'd be fine singers, but they wouldn't be able to, you know, make it sound like a, a child's world, you know, really, because they, you know, you, you want to make some strange sounds and like do all these whoops and like growls and you know things like that. Anyway, but Roomful lives in that that world. So, and they they study all sorts of different techniques. So basically, to this also was a COVID project. I think it was probably yeah. you know two years ago that I was doing this. And um, they once a year they have a workshop where they bring in com- composers who are working on commissions for them. And uh, and each of the singers shows kind of what their specialty is, what they've studied, what their range is, what they like to do, what they don't like to do. Uh, this time it happened online as a Zoom, um, thing because of COVID, but it was so cool to be like in a room, video room, with each of them saying, so I really love to do, my voice can, you know, do these yodels and, you know, or I like the it, really nice. bass and, um, each of them, and they even send you sheets that say, this is, you know, this is my best range, but up here I can do this and down below they I can do that. And. Um, so it's not so much, you're not writing for um, generic voices, and you're not writing for a yeah. choir, you're writing for these individual singers, um, knowing what each of them can do, and um, and as you say, it has upright bass, that uh, uh, frankly is totally influenced by this group from the um, late 60s and 70s called the Swingle Singers that put out a, um, a record of uh, Bach, uh, but with them basically scatting the yeah. uh, these Bach <laughs> preludes. And with 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 an upright bass. And it's just such a great sound. I could never get it out of my head. And um so John Patatucci, I'm very happy to say was was able to do the upright bass um, and room full of teeth through the vocals. And you know you couldn't ask for better group of musicians. I mean it's yeah, just
0: what a to to do that. wonderful score. It's so it's so uh, just fresh and original. So I really loved it, really enjoyed it. And uh so uh and then one more thing before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention your good old friends, the the Cohen brothers. You know, you worked on Macbeth with Joel. And uh, I know you mentioned that, you know, Ethan was stepping away from films, but apparently he is working on a on a movie. So I'm curious do you know if he's? Are there, are, is the band going to get back together? I know I don't think Joel's involved on this one. Are you going to be involved in this? One? I know he co-wrote it with his wife, uh, but it's. Uh, so I'm curious what what's going on with the the, the good old band.
1: <laughs> um, well, so I think they they I think Ethan wrapped um, his shoot and he's editing now, um, and the expectation is that I'll work on it. That's what we've talked about, um, but okay. I haven't. Um, we haven't had the conversation of like you know like when we're going to spot or what kind right. of score it's going to be. Um, I think you know they didn't, some films they edit while they're shooting so that we get to the end of the shoot and there's some kind of an assembly of the film. He didn't do that because I think he wants to be hands-on with the editing. So um, yeah, same with Joel. So it means that um, I won't, Ethan's still going to take a couple more months to like find his cut and start to think about what he wants. It's the kind of movie where, yeah, it's not obvious, I mean, I think I can say that there, you know, this scene would be scored, this scene would be scored, but a lot of the scenes would be songs probably because of um, right. the nature of the of the film and the story. So we'll figure. We have yet to figure all those things out, but basically, yeah, I'm, I'm 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 assuming I'm going to do it, and um, <laughs> uh, and and looking really, you know, really looking forward to it.
0: That's awesome because I I really love what you and Joel did with Macbeth. I thought that was awesome to take see your guys' take on that and Denzel's performance, and and I I love creative endeavors going in different ways and hopefully all three of you can get back together one day for a project but uh i'm excited to see what happens with uh, with this one so <laughs> oh,
1: me too yeah
0: well carter thank you so much for your time and for your insight it's been such a pleasure as always and uh and congrats on banshees it's uh, it's such a wonderful film and and everything you do i just love everything you do so it's, it's always a joy to talk to you so thank you so much
1: Oh, well, great thank you it was nice talking to you too